Good morning. It's good to see you all. We will be in Deuteronomy chapter 7 today. Last week we were in Deuteronomy 6. Let me, let me pray and I just wanted to go back to chapter 6 real quick. Uh, just to, in seeking to accomplish a task to finish a chapter, you don't always get to talk about as much as you plan to. So I did just want to really quickly interact on, on just the responsibility that parents have in their homes. It's really that rings out in, in Deuteronomy 6 and it was acknowledged, but we didn't really get to think about application. Thought it might be a good way to start and then we'll move right into chapter 7. So let me, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this morning. We, we gather to make much of you. Uh, you are God alone. You are the one true God. There is no one like our God. We're thankful for that reality that we are reminded of throughout Deuteronomy. Your character is on full display in this book. So I pray as we study Deuteronomy that we would grow in our knowledge of you, that we would remember your work uh, that we would not forget what you have done, uh, that we would know um, the truth of your word, and that we would know you, and that that knowledge of you would, would lead to, to life, that it would, um, that it would be applied in, in practical living, that we would live in light of what we know, that we'd seek to honor you and glorify you with all we think, say, and do. So I pray you just use this time this morning as we continue to study this, this book of Deuteronomy. Uh, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so again, we'll be in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. Just wanted to circle back real quick. In chapter 6, very familiar instruction that we're given, but just to think practically about what verse 7 would look like. After the Shema, verse 4, that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And, and so we, we see that what we know about God um, and, and our love for God in light of his choosing, his love for his children um, ought to motivate godly living. And it also, so we ought to obey his commands we also ought to teach these truths to our children. And so then there in verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit and when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise. And so those, those statements of the instruction ought to characterize our homes is what's clear there. So when you sit, when you rise, um, or when you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise, we're seeing that that's just all of life. And so the, the encouragement and the command there for us as families is that parents would be these primary disciples that would, that would train up their children, that they would teach them diligently. And so, so I hope for, for parents that are in this room this morning, um, just that you can often find yourself discouraged when you think through, oh, I've, I fall short of this in, in many ways. But but, but I hope you'll use that instruction and, and just as a reminder of the important task that we have, the, the meaningful um, task we have as um, 
primary disciples in the home. God alone saves. Who can change a sinner's heart? The Holy Spirit alone. But the means by which God often saves is, is in the home with parents uh, training up their children as we're instructed in Deuteronomy 6-7. So I hope just parents would be motivated and encouraged to, to allow this to be instruction for them to, that, that their home would be characterized by teaching diligently this truth that whether you're sitting down or walking, whether you're lying down or rising, all of life, would, would it be characterized by diligent um, discipleship of, of who God is and what he's done, how we can have a right relationship with him. And so that's just the, the motivation there in Deuteronomy 6, I think, for, for us as parents. Uh, really, a neat application too would be just for opportunities as you interact with other parents, just to younger parents to ask more seasoned, older parents, maybe parents whose children have, have um, been raised into adulthood. They're out of the home now, and you could, you could seek out instruction from other parents, discipleship on what did this look like in your home? How did you allow your home to be characterized by such diligent instruction and, and have others pray for you and, and encourage you in ways to be faithful to God's commands there? So I don't feel like I get to say that last week, and I wanted to say that. And so, so we talked about a lot else in chapter 6, but we need to move on then now to chapter 7. And uh, really, there's, if you think of practically what's going on in chapter 7, you're just seeing instruction for destruction in a way of how to, how, what they're to do when they enter into the land, this utter destruction that is supposed to take place um, in accordance with God's commands of the people and their idols. As they go into Canaan, they are to destroy utterly wipe out the Canaanites and their idolatrous worship. And so they're in to, to enter into the land and, and destroy. And so that's really what we're going to see, but it's not really, you know, the, the main theme of Deuteronomy 7, because really what, what's going on here is we are being reminded of God's choice of Israel. And so as you're walking through chapter 7, the Lord your God has chosen you is this instruction that rings out to Israel in chapter 7. And so God has chosen Israel as his people. And in light of God's sovereign election of Israel, um, they are to allow that to inform. That is their identity. As they go into the land, they are this treasured possession of God's. And that ought to inform how they live. They ought to obey God's commands in light of who they are. God has chosen them, and so it's their identity. This, this choosing is their identity, and it is also the basis for what they're to do when they enter in. The basis for the extermination of the Canaanites is informed by what we read in those pivotal verses in chapter 7. Uh, begin, let me, let's just read verses 6 and 7 again real quick. Um, I say again, we haven't read it yet. We'll, we'll read it again later, but Deuteronomy 7 verses 6 and 7 is very much at the heart of this chapter and very important in the whole book and very important in the whole life of Israel to read verses 6 and 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all 
peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so that, that sovereign choosing of God very much informs the instruction that takes place throughout the chapter. And so as we walk through, we, we intend to read through the whole chapter, but I just want to point out a few things. As, as I was studying it this week, that initially just really making some observations as I first read through the chapter, and just noticing that as you read through, there is a whole lot of assumed reality that, that's going on it, from the, the omniscient mind of God, the sovereign purposes of God, the, the reality that there is a lot that is going to happen. It's not if, but when. As you walk through Deuteronomy 7, there, there's a whole lot of not if, but when. Let me just even point that out. As you walk through the chapter, you, it begins with this reality that God is going to bring you into the land. When God brings you into the land, when God drives out many nations. Verse two, when God delivers them over to you. Uh, later on down in the chapter in verse 20, it speaks of when God will send the hornet upon the Canaanites, driving them out. There's all of this when God is going to do this, not if God is going to do this. And so a lot of what one commentator would describe as assumed reality. Uh, also, uh, this is what God is going to do. And so in light of what God is going to do, as you read through the chapter, very, uh, it's just, you must, you must, you must, you must. So much instruction for Israel about what they are to do, what they are not to do. So just real quickly, as you go through the chapter, the, the instruction given to Israel, they're instructed to destroy the Canaanites totally. They're not to make a treaty they are not to intermarry. They are to break down the altars. In fact, as you walk through verse five, there's very strong verbs that are used to describe what is to take place in regards to the idolatrous worship that takes place in Canaan. So they're to break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, burn their idols. Break, smash, cut, burn. I mean, those are strong verbs. Uh, the instruction continues later on in the chapter as you move down into verse 12. The you must instruction to Israel continues with you must pay attention to these laws. Again, a reminder to destroy all the peoples. Uh, they are not to even look on the people with pity. Earlier, uh, you almost have to like look back and, and make sure you're reading correctly because Israel is told to show them no mercy. And so that is going to be their approach to this utter destruction of the Canaanites. So don't even show pity to them. Definitely, absolutely do not serve their gods. Do not serve the gods of the people. Do not be afraid of the Canaanites. Uh, remember well what God has done. These are all of the type of you must instruction that is given in chapter seven. Do not be terrified of the Canaanites. As we walk through the chapter, we're gonna see this reality that they're greater in number than the Israelites, but God alone is great. So do not fear them. Do not be terrified by them. Burn their images to the grounds. Uh, burn the images of their gods. 
Uh, that is what they are reminded to do multiple times in this chapter. Uh, in fact, they're the detestable things, anything associated with the pagan worship of the Canaanites is to be utterly destroyed. And so gold and silver that's involved with pagan worship, uh, don't covet it and don't keep it. Do not take it into your house, destroy it. Uh, do not bring anything detestable into your house. Abhor the things that God hates. Uh, destroy the things that God hates. Detest the things that God hates. That's what, that's what you see as you walk through chapter 7. So indeed, much instruction is given in the chapter. But you step back and are reminded that the instruction that they are given is all informed by the fact that, again, of verses 6 and 7, that God has chosen you. This, this choosing, they are, they are a holy people, meaning they are set apart. And so this sovereign choosing that was unconditional as God chose Israel informs what they're to do when they go into the land, what they're not to do as they go into the land. So with that as a background, let's actually get into the text. We will we'll read through in the, these four sections. Really, I just kind of took... The, the divisions that, that I have in, in my, the Bible that I'm reading from, this, the ESV Bible, just the divisions in the chapter, um, and really kind of, you're going to see really a pattern amongst these four, the way that the four divisions unfold here. If you're almost thinking of A, B, B, A is what's going on here, because A is God commands the destruction of the Canaanites. So that's A, uh, destroy the Canaanites. So then you go, B, obey. And then the next section continues to think through obedience. There are blessings of this obedience. And so then the fourth section is back to that theme again of destruction. So the um, part four, God will destroy the Canaanites. So part one and part four, destroy the Canaanites, God will destroy the Canaanites. Part two, obey. Part three, there's blessings to that obedience. So let's look at the very first section of this chapter. God commands the destruction of the Canaanites. Let's go ahead and read. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 5. Deuteronomy chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars, and dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their asherim, and burn their carved images with fire." Okay, so in verses one through five, you're seeing this command to enter and destroy the Canaanites as they, they go in and this conquest of the land that the Lord has given them. And so the, the people that possess this land 
really, how does God view the people that currently possess the land um, prior to Israel going in? Cursed. They're, they're cursed. They're, it's almost as if they, they are trespassing. I say almost, they are. They, they, they are wrongly occupying this land. This is, this is not their land. It's, this is the land that God is giving to Israel. So they're cursed, and so they're going to be wiped out because this land is... is um, Israel's. And so they're going to go in and destroy. The people, these, these seven nations that are listed, it's not always, there are some times where just six nations are listed, other times where, you know, there's described as Canaanites. Here we, we're talking of seven nations. We know more about some, some about all of what, what are listed. But uh, you see these seven nations that are listed. But what is, um, what is clear from the seven um, nations that are described is that they do not belong in this land. And so they are going to be wiped out by God. And so Israel is to go in and not to fear because these people are larger and stronger. As I was reading, it does appear that um, you, could, you could read this either as um, each individual nation was, was larger but it, but it seems that, and there's, there's place for it in the language just to recognize that they, these nations that occupy Canaan, they are larger and uh, they are stronger than the Israelites. So collectively, these people are larger and stronger. And so as they think through, wow, we're going to go in. Are we, how are we going to have success? Um, tempted to be terrified, tempted to fear. And God is saying, do not fear the people that are larger and stronger than you because I am greater than them and you will, we will, you will utterly wipe them out. And so this treasured possession is to go in and possess the land that God has given them. Um, question, uh, in regards to what they're told not to do, they're told not to make any treaty with people uh, in Canaan as they enter in. Just interact on that for a couple of seconds. Why would this be a bad plan? Why would this be sinful? Why would this be disobedient? to enter into treaties with any of the people of the land of Canaan. Let's just list a variety of ways that this would be disobedient to God's commands. It would turn the people away from God. Okay, yeah, that's right. So you, you, um, you yeah, that's right. You, you make a treaty with them and then it's gonna end up leading to uh, corruption of the people of God where they're going to then you know, enter like if they enter into covenant with other nations, and they're going to be tempted to worship with them. Yeah, go ahead, Gary. That's right. So you've already disobeyed the command to utterly wipe them out. If you make a treaty with them, that means you did not obey the command to utterly destroy them. Very good. In his description of them, he focused on their religious beliefs, and they were idolat you know, idolatrous. He doesn't want them to be connected with idolaters. Very good. He doesn't want that for his people. Very good. Keep you good. You're putting your security in men instead of God. Very good. So if, if you're thinking, this is, you know, if you think of all the times as we've read through, uh, as um, whether it's Sarah, you know, thinking, um, in her own mind, what, that what would logically make sense, trusting man's, if God has promised Abraham, you know, descendants, and, and we don't have any children, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to solve this problem on my own. It, it seems like if you were to enter into a treaty, it would just be like man's wisdom. Um, this is what people do. I'm going to do what makes sense to me. I'm not going to trust the Lord. And so 
Nicole, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You're, not only is it disobedient because you didn't utterly wipe them out, not only is it going to lead you into um, being associated with pagan worship, you're just not trusting God. You are, you are trusting man. It's a human effort to occupy the land. Um, that's what treaties, that's how I'm going to occupy is just human effort. No, no, no. It is God that uh, is going to uh, cause you to enter and occupy. So you're not dependent on God when you enter into treaty. Yeah, Jim. Treaties use is not normally one way. A treaty is two ways. So for them not destroying them, they get certain things from Israel, which means, for instance, Israel are going to find out later, they get under attack and Israel is obliged to go and protect them. So that takes them off the focus that God has them on, off to doing something else that they're not supposed to be doing, and 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 still saving demon worshippers against you know their foes instead of doing what God asks them to do. Very good, and in in line with what Jim is saying too, they are already claimed, like they are already under covenant. They they have covenanted. God has covenanted with them. They, so they don't, are not to make a covenant with anyone else. They're, they're under covenant with God. And so then, as Jim's pointed out, you covenant with someone else, and there's going to be fallout from that covenant, which you're going to read about in the scriptures. Uh, in fact, just real quick, go over to Judges, Judges chapter 1. Because as we know our Old Testament, we'll recognize these, these commands that are given are not obeyed, you know? And so, so as you read, think of what they're told not to do. In Deuteronomy 7, and then Judges chapter 1, verses 21 through 34. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethsheen and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Uh, we could go on down through verse 34 just to continue to read how um, Israel does not do what they're commanded here in Deuteronomy 7, and it does not go well for them. Um, so then if the question is, why, why would this be a bad idea to um, make treaty with the Canaanites? Let's move down to the very next command, not to intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons. Do not take their daughters for your sons. Uh, why would this be disobedient to intermarry with the Canaanites? It's a bad thing to kill your relatives. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, yeah. Right, right. You're not as tempted to. Okay. Gary, when it, you were making an observation about the treaties, I feel like the, the same observation would be here again. So if there are people to marry, why were they, what, what are they doing here? Why were they not utterly destroyed? And so you've been disobedient to God's command to utterly destroy 
but, but there's a variety of other um, reasons to, to recognize, uh, definitely connected to, uh, as I was saying, just the, the pagan worship. So you marry in, um, an, an idolater, and then you are going, it's, your, your heart is going to drift from God and drift towards um, pagan worship. Let's read this on display. Yeah, 1 Kings 11. Uh, turn there real quick. Um, we have multiple examples. Uh, so Solomon just, just demonstrates this painful reality of, of such disobedience. Um, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. So that, this is the why of, of this do not intermarry. Surely they will turn your heart after other gods. Yeah, the problems are. Okay. Yeah, yes. Yes, Solomon clung to these in love. And so indeed, Solomon was disobedient. Stay in 1 Kings. Go over to chapter 16. 1 Kings 16, verse 30. Maybe uh, 29, actually. Also, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshiped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Okay, so this, this command in Deuteronomy 7 is to be taken seriously. Um, show no mercy. Do not pity them. Utterly destroy them. And there are reasons for this command because if you don't obey it, problems will ensue. And as you move through the Old Testament, you see Israel disobedient to this command and problems that ensue from such disobedience. See a, a lot of hands up. Yes. Um, do, are you going to touch on, you know, maybe like the world's perception or non-believers, you know, what? Of what? what no, show no mercy. Surely there were innocent children or... I mean, you just gave all the reasons why. Right. But I don't know that they would satisfy, and maybe there is no reason that would satisfy a non-believer. I don't know. That's right. I, without saying callous, I, I don't know that if I'm, if I'm finding myself desiring to, to uh, uphold just like the glory of God and his wisdom and his commands, and, and uh, they are set apart, the people of God, to um, glorify him, and they're to have nothing to do with the pagan worship. And so if, if they don't utterly destroy them, they are going to, um, there's going to be 
problems, they're going to be so tempted to join in in the idolatrous worship. And so then you see that happen because they don't utterly destroy them. And so, so I, I do think you're right. It's not going to satisfy an unbeliever to hear that. And it, it's because God's glory is not predominant in their mind to, to be comforted by that. that. This is about God's glory. He alone, he's jealous for his own glory. He alone is the right object of our praise. And the best thing for Israel is to worship God only. And if they, if they share um, and don't utterly destroy they are going to join in in this offensive, um, detestable work of, of the Canaanites. And so that's why God would, would command them to, to utterly wipe them out. And so in fact, it is, when you read through such a difficult instruction, this is an example of, like, there, there are times where you know, you're going to go in and um, defeat someone and, and just take ownership of the land, take ownership of the people, and take them as your possession and allow them to be your you know, your slaves. That would be times where you see in certain acts like that. But here, with what God is commanding Israel as they go into Canaan, is this utter destruction. Um, and and so, so that is what is to take place there, to utterly destroy the, the people who are trespassing on, on, um, on the land for Israel. Um, let's move in then to this, this next section, verses, verses 6 through 11. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 11. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Okay, so as you walk through here, what a great place to, to observe God's unconditional um, choosing. Like, it's not based on their size. It's not based on anything about them. Why did God choose Israel? Well, God alone is the basis for this unconditional choice. Um, according to his own sovereign purposes, God chose them. He is the basis for the choosing. And so as you read that he has set his love on them, that's, that's synonymous with choosing. So as you read of, of love and choice here in verses six and seven, that those are synonyms here um, for, for God's sovereign choosing, his setting his affection on, setting his love on Israel was according to the sovereign purposes of God. So even in the, Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament, this, this statement, to set his love, is described as a reasoned and unconditional decision. So setting his love on Israel was a reasoned and unconditional decision. 
Uh, it's kind of neat then as you move through, God, God sovereignly chooses Israel according to his own purposes, not because of who they are or what they've done, but because he set his affection on them. He chose them. And there is evidence of this. So as you then move, move through the, the rest of the verses, as you see what God has done, even, even his activity in, um, in Egypt demonstrates his sovereign choosing. So his, the evidence of his electing love is on display as you read through what he did in delivering them, redeeming them from the house of Pharaoh, and his work in redeeming them um, um, from from Pharaoh is also evidence that he alone is God. So you're seeing his love for Israel and the fact that he alone is God as on display as you walk through what God has done, who God is in verse nine. These are just great truths to take note of as you see the character of God demonstrated here and, and listed in verse nine. Know therefore the Lord your God, he alone is God. He is the faithful God and the faithful God is, is the one who has this steadfast hesed love, the, the faithful God who um, keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So he has entered into covenant with Israel. He keeps covenant and steadfast love with, with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Uh, so he loves those whom he loves and he hates those whom he hates. Those who hate him are going to be destroyed. So, um, so those whom he loves are those who he chose. Um, and those whom he did not choose, um, this is not some like emotional, um, we often think of love and hate in these emotional terms, but this is just according to, he chose those whom he loves. And so those whom he did not choose are those whom he hates. And those whom he did not choose are, are those who hate him too. You see, he repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. So, Israel, be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Uh, just comments, uh, very few comments here actually. Uh, go ahead, uh, Dave, yeah, on verses six through 11. Well, actually it's, it's the other question was asked. I mean, God was actually very patient with the Canaanites. From Genesis 15, verse 15, but as you shall go to your, I'm sorry, um, I'm sorry, 16. And this shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God waited a long time for them to become sufficiently evil that he was willing to kill them all. And, um, and then in, in Deuteronomy 9, we have, um, but because of the wickedness, I'm sorry, verse uh, 9, 5, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. Um, and we know that they were they're practicing child sacrifice. That's one of the things they were doing. The other goddesses, the gods and goddesses, were things like God of free sex. And I mean, if you look at who Astra was, the things that were being practiced uh, if you look at Paul's description of the descent of sin and where it ends up in total corruption, they were there. And why would, why would you kill an innocent child? We're not born innocent. We're not, I mean, we're not born innocent. We're born, according to Scripture, evil. I mean, we are all deserving of his wrath, but God is very patient. 
and he waits for us to complete our evilness before he destroys us, or he has chosen us and we get his grace. But um, there's no human answer in this because the human answer thinks that children are born innocent. That's good to even interact with what, when you're thinking, how would this satisfy the mind of someone who's lost it? You're right. So to understand the justice of God would be to have a right understanding of who God is and a right understanding of humanity. And, and we, are, we are not innocent. So it's very good comments. Um, let's, let's move on here into the next section. So God, God commands them to obey. And it ends that section there with, again, just be careful to do all that I command you this day. So then recognize the, the wisdom and, and just the goodness of God's law as you move into the next section. That there's going to be blessings for obedience. Uh, that God is going to bless them, and you can count all sorts of ways that the blessings will be on display in Israel if they will just remain faithful to their God. God's unconditional promise to Israel that they, he has given them this land. But those who do not obey, uh, the timing of and the people who experience God's blessing is going to be um, affected uh, by their disobedience. And so that the right response is to obey God's command. So verse 12, because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb. They're gonna be fruitful. They're gonna, they're, it's going to give them many descendants. They're going to be, there's going to be blessings upon their womb, blessings upon the fruit of the ground. They're going, to, they're going to have agricultural blessings. As you read of the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. They are going to experience <clears throat> success in, in their um, in agricultural, uh, in family life. God's going to bless them. Uh, verse 14, you shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. The Lord will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew, will he inflict on you, but he will lay on them all who hate you. So you're even seeing health as a blessing that Israel would experience um, through their obedience to God's commands. Verse 16, um, and you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. I think it's just interesting, if you keep hearing how many times this reminder is given that they are to utterly destroy, it might even help us understand even just like, just like what a good question that is to think that, man, this, is this really what God means that utterly wipe them out, to show no mercy, to destroy them, because I'm thinking there might be another option here. So God continues to remind them of the, the, the utter destruction that is to unfold um, as, as he reminds them of it and lists it repeatedly. Um, you, your eye shall not pity them. Um, you shall consume all the peoples. So then it moves into this last section. God commands obedience. They are to obey him fully. And then it is God who will be the agent who wipes out. So, you know, you're not gonna be tempted to, to um, pride here in what a great 
army you are. No, it's God who gives them the victory. And so as you move through this last section of chapter 7, verses 17 through 26, it's God who's going to destroy the Canaanites. And so as you walk through, what is it that's going to be under this destruction, this total destruction? It's the people and the idols. And, and so even when you think, I, I just think that we're not going to be able to read this whole section, but uh, as, as you look at how they're even to treat anything that is connected with their false worship, it is to be utterly destroyed, even if it comes across as something practical to keep. No, don't keep it. Destroy it. So verse 25, the carved images of their gods, you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. So to destroy the things that are to be utterly destroyed. Don't bring them into your house. Don't be tempted by them. Of course, we, we, on all of these, we can then move later on to the Old Testament and watch failure to obey. And so then when you see, like if you think of Achan's sin on display in Joshua, it's, it's you know, these precious metals. Uh, no, don't keep them. Utterly destroy them. And so again, all of this is informed by verses six and seven. The theme, that the focus really of chapter seven is is God's choice of Israel. God has set them apart. They're, a holy, they're to be a holy nation. They are a treasured possession. And so they are to obey him fully. They are to utterly wipe out their enemy as they enter into the land that God is giving them. Not if, but when. All right. Um, praise God for his faithfulness um, to his people. Uh, let's, let's, let's pray. It does, good. Mm-hmm. Uh, let, let me just say this. I agree with Dave's point about the depravity of man being born in the world sinful. But I would recommend a good book by John MacArthur, Safe in the Arms of God. Yeah. Um, that uh, I think really makes a great biblical case for the salvation uh, and mercy shown to babies mm-hmm. when they die. I think that's very important. Uh, David said he will see his child again. Uh, they're referred to as innocent ones in different places. I just think there's a great biblical argument in that book that's very comforting regarding babies. I think it would apply to the Canaanite babies, it would apply to babies anywhere, abortion, anywhere. It's a very, it's a very comforting uh, theological perspective on this whole subject because I had the same concern that a lot of you have. What about these babies? Just killing these babies? But you know, and I'm you know only in the mind of God and only in the mercy and goodness of God. You know, you know the difficult issues here. But um, I think Doug holds his view too. So I don't think I just think we're out of time. Can't really talk about that as much as maybe we maybe we want to. But safe in the arms of God is a really good resource for that. Thank you. All right, let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are, we entrust ourselves to to you, your faithful God. Um, and may we just entrust ourselves to you in light of what we know to be true. May we live in light of what we know to be true. May we be obedient to you. We're thankful that, that you have shown us mercy. None of us are deserving of it. We're, we're born in sin, as has been mentioned, and our sin separates us from you. So our greatest need is, is to be brought into a right relationship with you, and the only way to be brought into a right relationship with you is to have your righteousness. And so We trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins so that our sins can be wiped away and we can be declared righteous. So we thank you and praise you for that truth. 
And so brought into a right relationship with you, may we now live in obedience to your commands and glorify you with all we think, say, and do. Love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.